All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy, and hope you learn something, too. Oh, there it is. Look at that. Recording. Yeah, we are recording. It's official now. That's pretty so let me, fancy. Yeah, it is. It, it's actually a pretty good tool because you you know, you know, can do these things remotely, and it doesn't require an in-person. It's actually, if you can get the, the logistics figured out with the sound <laughs> and all that, it, it actually is really convenient. Or windstorms or whatever you're Yes, exactly. Happens. Yeah, we, d- we did one episode with, with somebody who... They set up their computer right near an AC unit, and so oh, we had to go back and we had to clean up all the white noise. It was a it was oh, a train wreck, but yeah, easier yeah. just to re-record. I would say. Yeah, yeah. I just felt I felt so bad emailing him back and be like, "By the way, can we do that all over again?" You know, no, but no, that, that it happens. turned out all right. That's it funny. does. It does. Um, well, hi everyone. Uh, if you're trying to figure out what uh, Dan and I were talking about, we're we're doing this podcast remotely. Uh, I'm in D.C., he's in California, and we have this online podcast studio that enables us to record ourselves talking, and we were just marveling about how convenient it was, but also the potential uh, pitfalls. On today's episode, we're going to explore an intersection that we have not looked at yet, and it's housing policy and climate policy. And we've done several episodes on housing and health, and housing and education, housing and economic growth, housing and hunger... But today it's housing and our climate. And we have with us today one of the world's leading energy experts, Dr. Dan Kamen. He is a distinguished professor of energy at UC Berkeley, where he holds appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. He's a former science envoy for the State Department, appointed during the Obama presidency. He was a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which won the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize for their report, which assessed man-made global warming. He was a chief specialist for renewable energy and energy efficiency at the World Bank. He served in a variety of roles in global energy initiatives and other federal roles, including at the Energy Department and the EPA. Uh, So, Dan, it is a great, great pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me on. 
So I'd like to uh, start by by asking you, you know, I just I read your bio and that speaks for itself, but tell us a little bit about, you know, what we can't read in the in the bio. Why why do you do this work day in and day out? <laughs> well, I'm not actually sure. I started out um, <laughs> as a physics major mainly because I planned to be an astronaut. And okay. when I was dinged on the vision test down in Houston, ah. um I sort of had this interest in continuing my interest in different areas of physics. Um, energy became more and more interesting to me. And actually, while I was in graduate school, I started to work in Central America on clean energy, appropriate technology topics. Okay. And it kind of took off from there. Cool. I'm having flashbacks to when I was in the Air Force and they did they did the vision test on me and they said, you are not flying. <laughs> so. well, I, I was so shocked that... Um, my vision wasn't good enough. I guess I'd forgotten that trees weren't sticks with green blobs on top. And they actually had leaves. <laughs> that I was incredulous since I thought I'd done so well on all the other astronaut tests. And suddenly this one uh, came up. But yeah. know, it's all worked out pretty well. That's right. Every closed door opens up another one. It all <laughs> seems to work out. Um, so let's uh, let's get to the topic of, of housing policy and climate policy. You know, there's there's mountains of research now around climate change. It's sparked... Uh, really, I mean, global conversations about reducing air pollution and renewable energy and, you know, transitioning to a low carbon economy. And there are, you know, governments around the world that are setting ambitious climate goals. There are states within the U.S. that are doing this important work. And you recently wrote an op-ed in the New York Times that highlighted California as a leader in this work. But you basically said, wait a minute, we're missing one piece here, which is that in order to solve the climate crisis, we have to solve the housing crisis. Explain what you mean by that. So I think there's two bits of the backstory that are, are needed here. One is that when we really started to think hard about fixing the climate problem, it was really all about uh, how quickly can we switch to renewable energy, mm -hmm. uh, solar, wind, bioenergy, if it's sustainable, uh, hydropower, if it doesn't affect ecosystems. And that already seemed Herculean, and we've gone far too slowly. But when that problem finally became uh, clear that by switching to now very low-cost solar and wind, investing in storage, we could solve the electricity problem, mm -hmm. then the next big problem looked like it was the transportation one. And that also looked insoluble yeah. until electric vehicles, largely driven because of lower and lower cost batteries because of our laptops and our cell phones. Now, we're also not far along on that, but it looks soluble. Mm -hmm. And so what that's done is it's highlighted as little, little as we've got actually gotten done. The really challenging areas are the ones that aren't just about technological switches, dirty to clean. Mm -hmm. They're about bigger behavioral things. And there's two big behavioral buckets. One are the amount of goods and services that we import from other countries. So what's the carbon embedded in our, um, in our purchases? Mm -hmm. And the second one is our homes. Yeah. And that's the one that this op-ed takes on because unfortunately it's not just a climate story. It's also a massive story of inequality and often yeah. social and racial injustice. Yeah. And so, you know, what you're saying throughout the op-ed is, you know, California, uh, like much of the country, has an affordable housing crisis. Um, you know, our data 
um, here at the national level shows that if you just look at sort of the lowest income people in the country, there's a shortage of, you know, something like 7 million uh, affordable and available homes. So the, the rub is that if you're a moderate or low wage worker and you want to find housing you can afford, you have to, like you said in the op-ed, drive till you qualify, um, you know, to the suburbs, to the exurbs, even past the exurbs. And, and even though the jobs are in the city centers, you have to start driving away from the city and keep going until you find housing that you can afford. And that creates a real significant transportation problem, which leads to a real significant climate problem. And that's exactly right. And we have families in the Bay Area and in this op-ed, we highlighted the super commuters, people who drive mm-hmm. more than 70 minutes one direction. Yeah. Which not only means, of course, they're burning huge amounts of fuel if they're using a, 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 a you know internal combustion car, which most people yeah. still have. But it also means that these are people who are generally getting up to go to work before their kids are awake, coming home when their kids are done with the day. And so quality of life is being right. destroyed as quickly as the climate is being destroyed. And that's yeah. what's really pushed us to look hard at not only can we think much more about, of course, electrifying the driving we have to do, but Mm -hmm. in particular, recognizing that the way that we design single-family home neighborhoods, the way that we don't build for infill, are all things that exacerbate not just the climate problem, but this huge socioeconomic injustice issue, which is crippling low-income Americans. Yeah, and the further you push people out, the further they have to drive to work and the more people then are driving to work and the more crowded the roads are and there's tons of people sitting in traffic and these cars are just emitting greenhouse gas emissions and you know i mean it's it's i live in the dc area and like you mentioned there it's also i mean it takes a pretty significant moral and physical toll too in terms of quality of life and there's real research around how bad traffic is for our bodies and our minds and stress and aggression. And, and in addition to all that, oh, by the way, you know, it's destroying our environment or at least contrib- contributing uh, to it. Um, so I want to get a sense of how, how severe is transportation-related greenhouse gas emissions? I'm trying to get a sense of what role it plays in the overall problem. Like, like what percent of all greenhouse gas emissions are related to cars? Right. So it's huge. Across the country, it's about a third of our emissions are due to transportation. And in places like California that have pushed very hard to clean electricity, Mm -hmm. transportation is now over 50% of our greenhouse gas budget, which means that if we don't solve the transportation problem, which doesn't just mean everyone drives an electric vehicle, Mm -hmm. it means that people don't have to drive as far. And because of exactly what we said, you have to drive until you qualify. We in California have people who drive from parts of the Central Valley to Silicon Valley for jobs and quality of life goes away. But it also means that we make design decisions around highways when we should be making them around where people live. And it it points me back Mm -hmm, to a joke. mm -hmm. At least I thought it was a joke when I was a a aspiring astronaut. And (laughs) we used to say that if Martians looked down at the Earth, they would conclude that cars were the highest form of life because we design our cities, our homes, everything around vehicles. Whereas last time I checked, we wanted to make it around quality of life. And so it really highlights how obsessed we've become with making life good for cars, not for people. 
And I, what I'm sort of gathering from what you're saying is, you know, we could, and, and, and in many places we are, where, you know, we can fix several different types of greenhouse gas emissions. And California is one of those places where in most parts of the economy, emissions have been trending down. But when you account for car traffic, a lot of that progress is just negated, right? Well, that's right. And it, it, it has a couple interesting angles. And so if you take a electric vehicle, you know, a Tesla or a Leaf or a BYD, um, which, by the way, means build your dreams, kind of a nice name for mm-hmm. one of the fastest growing Chinese electric vehicle companies. You take that electric vehicle and you operate it in a place like California or in the Pacific Northwest or in New York State with relatively low emissions. That vehicle will be rated at 120 or 130 miles per gallon. You take that same vehicle and operate it in a state mainly powered by coal. And what you get is a vehicle that gets 40 or 45 miles a gallon Mm. equivalent because Mm. of all the emissions associated with the coal. And so what that means is that the more you clean up electricity, the more electric vehicles can benefit you in other ways. And so part of the story is electrify and green are driving. But Mm -hmm. you can have just as bad a traffic jam in electric vehicles as in regular internal combustion cars. So the idea that we would start to think very hard about building neighborhoods that are clustered and coordinated around transit hubs, be they buses or in the Bay Area, we have BART, which is our above ground and a below ground subway system, Mm -hmm. and make our public transit the, the core of the network really the internet of how you get around if you will Mm -hmm. and that the peripheral drives in your electric vehicles that's a world where we can push back on not only this huge greenhouse gas budget but we can also make communities mixed by income level by race and those things make our communities stronger and so you really start to benefit us in ways that we didn't even consider a few years ago if this becomes the focus of sustainable, healthy neighborhoods and transportation. Yeah. And again, an an intersection that we've hit on other podcast episodes, which is the need to reduce racial and economic segregation and have inclusive neighborhoods. And so it all kind of comes full circle. I wanted to ask real quick about the, the, um, Emissions from vehicles. Now, you mentioned how how big of a number it is when you consider all greenhouse gas emissions. Is the trend line going up? Is it, it this is increasing? I assume, right? Well, so that's an interesting point. Um, uh, every time Americans get richer, they actually want to buy bigger and bigger cars, and we've mm. seen the profit margins from light and then heavy duty trucks go up and up, but. Electric vehicles are now starting to be enough of a real thing that the overall trend has flattened out. Even though gas prices are low, we now have a situation where in places like California, which is pushing very hard for electric vehicles, we have a mandate to get to a million EVs by the end of next year. We probably won't get all the way there. But when this was proposed six years ago, people thought it was absolutely ludicrous to have a million electric cars in California. Mm-hmm. Norway just saw in 2018 almost 60% of all cars sold were electric. China wow. has just set a mandate of 5 million electric vehicles by the end of 2020. And they've taken the really exciting step to say that China, which is the world's largest manufacturer of vehicles, plans to go all electric or hydrogen, so off internal combustion entirely within two decades. Wow. Remarkable things are yeah. happening. Yeah, 
just requires goal setting and commitment. And we could do the same on the housing side, which is yeah. we want those diverse, integrated walk to transit, walk to latte, walk to farmer's market neighborhoods, not just for rich white yuppies, but for right. everybody. And we, we've seen these horrible statistics about food deserts in inner city areas where you can't find a grocery store. You have to buy everything from very overpriced small bodegas. That mm-hmm. is a part of the cost beyond the greenhouse gas cost of having such segregated and such long driving communities. Yeah. Uh, We'll we'll talk more about um, some of the solutions in a minute, but I think one really important point here is that when we think about our current problem, a lot of it is self-inflicted because of bad housing policy and bad land use policy. And, you know, we're talking about super commuters that are driving, you know, an hour and a half or more getting to and from work. They're probably driving alone in their cars because you can't walk or bike that far and public transportation doesn't extend that far. And this is really all um, self-inflicted because we haven't had housing policies to promote the kinds of uh, communities that you're talking about. So can you talk a little bit, and you reference it uh, somewhat in the op-ed, but talk a little bit about what are these policies that are creating this current problem? Well, that's what's so sad about it, because when we go back to the 20s and 30s, when the U.S. was ripping out light rail lines, um, Mm -hmm. so we would have convenient uh, streetcars to get to neighborhoods, we also embarked on a process to segregate our communities more and more through building cookie-cutter suburbs Mm -hmm. and suburbs that had quite strong racial divisions. And that process was built was was built out, but it was essentially promoted because the more richer white people you had in your communities, the fancier stores, the higher property taxes. And so there was a ongoing cycle that made the rich, long commuting suburbanite the desirable thing to have in your community. And that institutionalized a process where we're now recognizing it wasn't just racially unfair, socioeconomically unfair. Now we're seeing the climate cost of that as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're talking policies all over the country where, you know, and and they still exist to this day. You know, cities, um, you know, have bans on apartment buildings in areas that are zoned for single family homes and that constrains supply and it increased costs. Our zoning is still, you know, very segmented or partitioned, I guess you could say, where the, you know, zoning, we, we put the, the job centers downtown, we put housing in a separate residential area, we put stores in separate shopping areas. I mean, if all this stuff were mixed, you wouldn't have to drive everywhere in your life to go from, you know, uh, the to go to, you know, the laundry and go shopping and go to work and go home. I mean, it, it just, it, it's really these policies have just really partitioned out our, our land. That's right. And it's, it's actually kind of curious because almost everyone I know who goes to Europe or to some of the cosmopolitan cities in in Brazil or in Argentina almost always comes back with a comment like, oh, they loved it. They felt so free. And part of that freedom meant from their hotel or from the Airbnb they were staying in, they were able to walk from a nice neighborhood to a shopping area to somewhere else and not to be so constrained by the vehicle intensive American lifestyle. And so it's funny that everyone seems to say a version of this. I would just had the greatest time in Zurich or in yeah. Portugal or in, or in Montreal. 
and don't see the connection to the real negatives that we have built into our system here. And so the idea that it has to be single family homes, we can't have integrated mixed use buildings that are both apartments, but also small stores. Those are what we actually crave in communities, but we've legislated them out. You always hear people, they get back from vacation from many of these places that you talk about. And then Monday morning, they're sitting in 90 minutes of traffic again. And you, you know, and it's, exactly. it's uh, yeah. Um, I think the other thing too, that our, that our campaign has pushed on a lot is just not only are we seeing these policies at the local and state levels, um, but also the federal government has been complicit in a lot of this. Um, you know, our, the particular focus of our campaign is when you, uh, is to look at existing housing resources, um, federal housing resources. And even if you look at what the federal government is doing today with its housing resources, they're not um, using, you know, they're not putting these resources to good use. So for instance, over half of federal government resources for housing are going to households that make over $100,000 per year. And that's largely through the mortgage interest deduction. Um, Only a quarter goes to people making less than $40,000 per year. So at the federal level, we've effectively gutted investments in affordable housing for low-income people. The big hit really came in the in the 80s and we continue to chronically underfund the things that help low-income people afford housing in high opportunity neighborhoods like you know housing vouchers or the housing trust fund um, so and not only are these these uh, sort of restrictive policies existing at the state and local levels but also there's a, a real chronic uh, federal underfunding issue as well um, so really I think you know as, as you talked about, I mean, we can't, you know, electric and hybrid cars are a big part of the solution. Um, but really the big part of the solution is to get people to drive less. Um, and what we really need there is infill housing, I think is what you call in the, in the op-ed, um, that we can, and, and you mentioned in the, the op-ed that this, this infill housing can perhaps reduce greenhouse gas pollution more effectively than any other option. Well, it's not that it can, it's that we actually observe that it does. And it's because so much of our dependence on resources is really tied to this locational, these choices. Because Mm -hmm. if you have a home, single family or not, or an apartment building in an area where you don't need to drive, you can use a mixture of public transit or there's convenient work that you can walk to, suddenly... You, not only does your own carbon footprint go down because you don't need to transport yourself that far, but then all of the goods and services that we purchase, all of the Amazon packages that come to our doorway are not being driven out through long suburban corridors. And mm-hmm. the restaurants, and the food we go to are much more convenient. And I think the, the, the piece of it that is even more thorny is that when we do get excited about one of these solutions – we get, about, we get excited about it in isolation. And so mm-hmm. when we decide, look, we have a better model for a lower income home, then we, t- then we tend to build blocks and blocks of them yeah. instead of saying, well, look, the solution is to build affordable quality homes for all, but also integrate them in so that everyone can walk to shopping. Everyone can walk to mass transit. But we don't do that. We tend to like single or what we call in my field as a physicist, univariate one variable at a time solutions. Yeah. Housing and planning is about a mixture of quality of life in our community. That has been something that has been very challenging, whether the metric is water or time or greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. 
it's a, a really fundamental question of integration of how do you get uh, executives and lawyers and doctors and teachers and firefighters and you know uh, service workers all in living in the same communities and their kids attending the same schools and sharing transit options and you know going to the same movie theaters and shopping stores it is it is really a, a key solution that we have to get we have to get serious about and we we really haven't yet as a nation well it's um, true um, yeah. It's also true, though, that it does sort of begin to suggest the solutions because a lot of things we can do differently actually build off of just recognizing that level of problem. So we have cities around the world that are now pushing for uh, traffic congestion zones where you can't drive into certain city centers. London gets a lot of attention for the so-called congestion pricing. And what mm-hmm. you find is that you now get lower traffic in these areas, but also you make the urban cores of cities more desirable and livable. And you don't get a situation where everyone goes into Wall Street, but then flees it at the end of the day or the financial district in a number of cities. People start to do infill housing, infill Mm -hmm. restaurants. We reinvest in mass transit. And so we can see the solutions that are really right there when you look at this problem more holistically. Mm -hmm. So how much do we actually need to reduce driving? Is there like, I mean, is there a quantifiable target that we should kind of be shooting for? Of how, how much do we actually need to cut driving by in terms of, I don't know, mileage or however you would measure it? So it's not actually the driving that we need to cut on the greenhouse gas metric. It's the greenhouse gas emissions. So mm. if your driving was in an electric vehicle powered by solar on the roof of your business, school or home, that would be relatively low emissions. And so there's not a number there. But the overall number is that we now know that we need to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 90% or more. Some people, myself included, would say roughly 100%. And we need to do so now in 30 years. And just to put that in context, if it took us about 150 years for the first industrial revolution, this means we need an entire new one now within one generation. Mm, mm. between now and 2050. And that means that uh, the effective greenhouse gas emissions per unit of driving or per unit of income are going to have to basically be slashed to zero. So this is, um, you know, in all of the news, we see the Green New Deal, um, which, you know, there's early outlines. It calls for several things from renewable energy sources to, you know, restoring forests and wetlands and upgrading infrastructure. Um, I I could be wrong. I I might have have missed it, but I don't think the current plan addresses these housing policy concerns or these land use policy concerns. Is is that kind of a, a missed opportunity that you see? It is. And in fact, I've, I've spoken to some of the Green New Deal leadership about it. I think they're aware okay. of it. When the first version was being drafted, they were really trying, I think quite wisely, to highlight many of the important ideas that had come up over the last uh, few years that had not been put into place. Okay. Much higher standards for green energy, much higher equity in job opportunities. Housing is one that was not recognized, and it was one of the motivations for the op-ed. But I'm Mm. quite pleased the Green New Deal leadership, and in fact now we've had several of the presidential candidates on the Democratic side come up with 100% green energy plans, very strongly integrating this housing issue. We've seen it both in that from Elizabeth Warren and from Jay Inslee Mm -hmm. and others. And so I I really do feel that this story is in in the, the water. But we have to get much more concrete about the policy steps forward. 
Yeah. It seems to me like there's, you know, a growing urgency in in both of our sectors, you know, in the in the climate movement, but also in the in the housing movement. I mean, there was, you know, last year there was the UN report that said I think we have 12 years to do something mm-hmm. to keep global warming where it's at, um, and after that the risks dramatically increase: droughts, floods, extreme heat. Um, and so I think what I'm what I'm hearing from you is you think that that sense of urgency around climate solutions will ultimately extend to housing and land use policies. Well, it absolutely because it because it has because, to. Right. Yeah, if, if exactly. we don't get there, we we don't make it. And what I find most interesting is that when we started to look at the clean energy transition, many of the things we saw: solar panels on your rooftops instead of buying power from from distant sources, actually save you money. We're seeing the mm. same thing in this climate housing story because mm-hmm. none of us want to sit in traffic commuting for hours a day. Yeah. None of us want to be exposed to high levels of pollution. And after all, asthma right now is the fastest increasing disease in the country, certainly pushed in part by exposure to particulates um, and pollution in our fuels. And so you mm-hmm. start to see solutions that actually have multiple winds built into them. And that's really what this nexus of climate and housing is all about. Yeah. yeah. And I think you know, we just did a, um, a national public opinion poll to kind of get the public temperature on afford, you know, housing affordability. And it, the percent of people that have said that affordability is a problem in their community, in their neighborhood, has jumped 21 points in just three years, which is really abnormal. And we're, and we're seeing this jump in cities, suburbs, rural areas, among Democrats, among Republicans. And so, Again, there's if if we could, you know, capture that sense of urgency just around, hey, the rent is too damn high. If we can capture that urgency and institute policies, there's spillover impacts to uh, to to the climate as well. And so there's there's a lot of win wins here. So, it, you know, I think what I've gathered from our conversation is that housing policy is not peripheral to the climate movement. It's very central to the climate movement. And and frankly, I don't think that. Uh, you know, housing advocates have really sort of capitalized on on that narrative yet. Um, so it seems like, you know, climate advocates and, and affordable housing advocates are natural allies, whether they realize it or not. So curious to pick your brain in terms of, you know, how should these two different sectors better partner together? Well, there's some really interesting trials. Like California has passed Senate Bill 375, which is a very interestingly written bill. What it says is that When a community wants to build a new um, shopping center or a new housing development, they must take into account the forecast added driving, the vehicle miles traveled Mm, in their mm. plan. And that has caused people to look much more differently about how we construct malls, how we place them in areas, how we think about housing developments that actually have easy access points, the amount Mm -hmm. we invest in um, in mass transit. So that's one example right off of a policy that is that is positive here. A second one is that California has a requirement that every new home built after 2020 must generate as much energy as it consumes. And that's quite Mm -hmm. a revolutionary step, because what it generally means is that you'll build a home that produces more. And that then says, well, if you now tie an electric vehicle to your home, now mm-hmm. your driving is for free. And since a gasoline-powered car costs you about 14 or 15 cents a mile to drive, 
and an electric vehicle powered by your own solar costs you about one cent per kilowatt hour to drive. Mm, mm. The amount of savings for a family, and in particular for a lower income family, your savings by going green can be dramatic. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. Um, and, and hopefully through these policies, we can start to build those relationships across sectors. You know, there's, you know, we, we you know, tend to work in our silos and, you know, I'm a housing advocate and I don't know that I have a ton of climate advocates in my Rolodex, but hopefully through these policies, we can start to build those stronger partnerships between the two sectors. Because again, these two issues are, are mutually reinforcing and central to each other. Um, I wanted to ask for, you know, folks that are, you know, listening to this podcast, particularly those that are housing policy wonks, um, what are what are some resources that you would encourage um, our listeners to check out? Is there, you know, reports or studies or websites? Where can they go to learn more about kind of this intersection between housing policy and climate policy? So one of the resources is the website for my laboratory, which is called RAIL the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Laboratory, so rael.berkeley.edu. We not only have the publications there, but more usefully, we have the carbon footprint calculator that has versions that are set up for your home, your business, your school. And one of my senior researchers, Chris Jones, maintains it, works with schools, works with communities when they want to do carbon footprint assessments. So that website, the rail site, and then the carbon footprint calculator, which is called coolclimate.org, they're linked back and forth, Okay, will allow you to download versions of the calculator for your phone, for your laptop. And that's a great resource. Another one is the U.S. Department of Transportation actually has a fairly good set of data on the number of electric vehicles that are in use, which is an important part. But as we've highlighted, you've got to think not just about the driving, but about the homes. And that's where things get unfortunately mm-hmm. sad at the federal level, because we do a very poor job to track progress on building affordable housing, and in particular, housing which has different markers for how far it is from transit. And so many Mm -hmm. of my students actually go to these apps like Foursquare and other things to look at the walkability score, the other metrics for how much is a given home, apartment or condominium convenient for uh, for for getting to work and and getting into the city center or getting out of the city center. So those resources we really need to build up. Great, great. Thanks for sharing that. I'll end with a, a last question. What worries you the most and what excites you the most about this topic? Well, I think what excites me the most um, is very easy, and that is that while we've seen some pushback from, from octogenarian politicians, the youth in this country and around the world have really started to take these issues on, not just piecemeal, not just say I'm a clean energy advocate, but the same people pushing for clean energy, also part of the extinction revolution, looking for Mm -hmm. ways to preserve wild areas. So I think that there's no question the biggest excitement is that we're really seeing a youth movement around this that we should be supporting, not suppressing. Mm -hmm. The, The thing that I think worries me the most is that the U.S. right now is just such a divided society. And we don't even see that in other parts of the world that we used to consider divided when we looked at the rich and the poor in Brazil and parts of Africa. We used to say, well, they were the ones that had 
these deep-seated divisions in parts of society. Well, we are unfortunately now the poster child for an inability to look beyond our differences and find out how we can work together. And yeah. housing and transport are certainly one of the areas where we could benefit everybody. Yeah. And as these divisions persist, the the clock is ticking, particularly around, uh, you know, climate solutions. The exactly. the sense of urgency is there. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, th- well. Thanks, Dan. This was this was really really fascinating. It, it's it's it was great to have you on the podcast and to share your your wealth of expertise with our audience. So, anything else that you'd like to share with our audience before we end? I guess just the last thing is that you know we we all see divides around um, socioeconomic lines, around racial lines, and integrated housing policy. Living with people who are not like yourself, we consistently also find to be something that enriches our lives. And this housing, transportation, climate issue was one where we can really deal with a much more fundamental problem, and that is we've become so much creatures of our different suburbs and neighborhoods and Mm. not reaching out to people who are not like ourselves. This is really a way to build that in and to benefit from it. Well said. We'll end on that note. Uh, Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate your time today. (laughs) Thanks so much.